This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. So we had another big batch of bank earnings, the big banks, Citigroup, equity sales, trading revenue, topping estimates, FIC disappointing, investment banking fees, a little bit of a surprise there. Uh, Bank of America struggling to build back its lending income. Wells Fargo average loans tumbling in the second quarter. We know that consumers and businesses, because of some of those stimulus programs, refrain from more borrowing, Tim. Well, let's get right into it with Anton Schutz, President and Chief Investment Officer at Menden Capital Advisors, joining us once again on the phone from Florida. Anton, it's always great to have you on the show, especially when we're talking banks, because I know you follow the regional banks very closely. Uh, But how are you thinking about or how would you characterize what we've heard from, from the big banks this week as they've reported earnings for their second quarter? Yeah, for the most part, not a surprise. Um, you know, loan growth, if you, if you, and of course I watch the weekly loan growth numbers, no surprise. There isn't any loan growth because there's so much liquidity out there. And part of that liquidity is finding its way into deposits at the banks, which is lovely, but it'd be really nice if they could offset it with some loans instead of the low yield on some of the securities they're buying out there. Well, okay, right. It makes sense. Um, you know, we talked about during the pandemic how it was a pretty good environment for these big banks. What's the outlook for them, or what stands out among the the big ones, Anton, that you have um, that have reported? Whether it's Citi, whether it's Bank of America, whether it's Wells, J.P. Morgan, Goldman, is there anybody in particular that you really kind of hone in on? Because as maybe an indicator of where the financial world, the banking world, is going. Well, you know, if you look at the big, they're national, right? Mm-hmm. And you can't you can't pick on regions. You know, I love picking on regions of the world because some some regions have above trend growth. So on a national basis, you know, banking is tough because too much liquidity. Uh, on the bigger banks, I like Wells Fargo. It's a self help story, right? I mean, they're getting out from underneath this regulatory stuff. They've got insane amounts of excess capital because they've not been allowed to grow their balance sheet. You know, buybacks are a really big part of all of the big banks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, J.P. Morgan bought, what, $5 billion of its own stock last quarter. Goldman bought a billion. You know, Bank America, I didn't didn't see the numbers this morning, but they're way up there as well. And Wells has, I think, something like $18 billion worth of stock to buy over the next, you know, year, year to year and a half. So that's a lot of its market cap, and uh, that's a lot of good support. Uh, it'll lead to earnings growth. But the real... The real uh, grail for these banks is, you know, a faster GDP, a lot of loan growth materializing. Uh, it'll do wonders for their earnings. And, you know, the interesting thing is they were all punished last year because they built all these giant loan loss reserves. Mm-hmm. Now they're releasing them, and you, you see these giant earnings numbers on the surface. You go, oh, they're well, just releasing loan loss reserves. That doesn't count. Well, if you punish them on one side, <laughs> why are you punishing them again when they're releasing them? But the point is they have really great credit. Uh, they have lots of capital, um, and they'll be buying back a lot of stock, and the dividends are being raised at a lot of these banks. So on the big, I look at them as capital return stories, buybacks, uh, dividends. Those are very important for those. And, and Wells, I think, is going to be able to eventually have higher earnings, and estimates are going to have to get raised. If loan growth materializes, this entire group estimates have to get raised. How, how are the results from the big banks? How are they informing you about 
the regional banks, the smaller banks that you follow so closely, uh, their results? Sure. So first of all, uh, you know, J.P. Morgan uh, really did actually talk about some loan growth. Where it's not having loan growth, which doesn't impact the regionals, is is the credit card balances. Right, the consumer is flush with cash. They got lots of stimulus, so no, none of the big banks are having growth there. So if you're a consumer lender, other than on auto, which a lot of smaller banks are, you're really not getting a lot of loan growth. You know, mortgage, the refi boom is sort of ended. Um, you know, so that's tepid. But I think you're going to see good commercial loan growth out of the southeast, out of Texas, out of Florida. Um, and I think you're going to see more tepid growth in other parts of the country. So among, I'm looking at your RMB Mendon Financial Services Fund, um, Anton, and it's up, it's up about 31% according to Bloomberg data, uh, year to date. So 91, uh, 91% off. I look at 12 months, 94th percentile up, uh, almost 103%. What kind of allocations are you looking to do? Is there anything in, in your portfolio that you think is getting ahead of itself? Um, how do you see some of those names? Yeah, that's, that's really, you know, you, you sit there and you say, wow, you're up 100% over 12 months, <laughs> and there are things ahead of themselves, and I've had some people say that to me, and things were so overdone. We were talking yeah. 12 months ago and how crazy the valuations were on the downside. The interesting thing is, is if I look at my average holding, and I did this exercise about a week ago, so the number's even better, they're down about uh, you know, 15 16% from their highs, so... Mm. You know, a lot of things have not gotten ahead of themselves. Obviously, rotated into some things that are cheaper. But I look at a number of my my positions that are trading at less than 10 times next year's earnings. And, you know, I want to own those. They have excess capital. They have good loan growth. Uh, I think they'll eventually get revalued higher. Um, One of them, you know, First Horizon closed a merger with Iberia last year. So that's got some Mm -hmm. Some really good valuation here. Uh, I look at a pending merger between Bancorp South and Cadence. Mm. And again, great geographies, $44 billion bank post the merger. You get a special dividend out owning Cadence. And I'm going under 10 times next year's earnings. Yeah, I want to own as much of that as I can. And uh, yeah, I mean, so yes, I I see lots of upside in those names. They're well off their 52-week highs. Well, always good to get a check with you and a lot of those regional banks, of course, uh, their earnings to come. So we'll be tracking them here at Bloomberg. Anton, take care. Anton Schutz, he's President and Chief Investment Officer at Menden Capital Advisors on the phone from Florida. Wondering about all the M&A and, and if it's going to A lot continue. of consolidation, yeah, right? Consolidation, It was yeah. interesting as he went through some of those names and talked about uh, the activity that uh, is still I mean, in the so works. highly regulated. Yeah, exactly. All right, you're listening to Bloomberg Radio. Today's Bloomberg Big Tech, it's also... This week's cover story of Business Week magazine, it's about the future for the drug company that's become a household word during the pandemic. We are talking about Moderna and really what is its second act. Joining us now is Joel Weber, editor at Bloomberg Business Week. He's with us in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Also, Bob Langreth, the healthcare reporter for Bloomberg News, uh, joining us on the phone. He's Bob, kind of the healthcare star. Right? He's the he's healthcare like star. How many he's also stories? the author of this cover story in the big I, I lost track like so long ago um, <laughs> in the pan- it was at the beginning of the pandemic where I was like, right, who can write about pandemics? Bob. Well, a year ago, I think it's fair to say, maybe Bob was thinking about mRNA, but most of us in this room, I don't think, weren't. 
And I, I wonder what Moderna's second act is here, right, after the pandemic. Actually, I remember that exact conversation with Bob about a year and a half ago. And, and he was like, so there's this company called Moderna that has this technology. And it's going to be really interesting to see if it works. So here, here we are. Um, uh, and, and Bob, let's just bring you in. You know, like the what we set out here to do was to say, look, like Moderna has been one of the, the big heroes of the pandemic. And if you can solve COVID-19, what else do they have? And what else does what else is mRNA capable of? So what are they working on? Yeah, so, uh, you know, it's, efficacy has definitely been de- demonstrated very powerfully for vaccines. And so now they're working on a whole host of other vaccines. Uh, there's like about, you know, 50 or more viruses discovered in the last 40 years. Only a tiny handful have vaccines. You know, Moderna thinks... That the, the technology, which is kind of modular and fast moving, can be, you know, make vaccines to a lot of them. They're working on the, a flu vaccine. They're working on several other respiratory viruses. They ultimately want to combine it to one kind of super booster that you might get like once a year and deal with a whole host of like, you know, fall, winter type respiratory viruses. They're working on long term, they're working on HIV and they're even starting to think uh, and have some early trials in cancer vaccines, which has been a, a, a long promising but very difficult area. Bob, I've got 100 billion questions for you about that. I mean, this company <laughs> hit a $100 billion market cap today. The expectations on it are incredibly high in terms of what Moderna can do. Can this messenger RNA technology science really be trans, you know, translate to a lot of different vaccines ultimately, or do we still not quite no. Well, we're going to have to wait and see. They're certainly <laughs> going to be testing a lot of things. Uh, and, uh, and you know, one of the things we talk about in, in the story is uh, they're certainly pursuing booster shots. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and we may need them at least a third booster shot at some point. It's, it's you know, not... You know, not at all clear how big the, you know, the market for COVID-19 is going to be sort of in the long term. So there is going to be pressure for them to come up with other things and new things, not be dependent on, you know, an endless market for COVID-19 boosters. And the other thing going on is that now everyone else knows, every other drug company in the world knows that this, this technology can really work, uh, you know, at least in the infectious vaccine area. And they're all pursuing it and all kind of, all trying to come up with like, you know, newer, better versions of mRNA. So there's, you know, they're in a great position, but there's also a lot more very serious competition now. So you spent some time at uh, one of the production facilities for Moderna outside of of Boston. It's a former Polaroid factory. What is the competitive advantage that the company has now that every other biotech company knows that mRNA has been so successful, at least when it comes to coronavirus? Uh, Yeah, the basic competitive advantage they have is they've done it. They've done it successfully. The only other company that's achieved that level of success is obviously Pfizer-BioNTech, but not every mRNA vaccine has worked as well. There's a third one that was tried, uh, CureVac, and its trials came out a few weeks ago, and it was only 48% effective. So not every iteration of things you put in, you can't just put an mRNA vaccine and have it automatically work. You've got to make the right choices, and then it can work, you know, do a powerful immune response. So they they are one of the two companies with real experience doing this on a large scale now and you know their production they you know they haven't matched pfizer which has just been this incredible you know vaccine producing juggernauts they haven't matched pfizer biontech but you know their their production still you know they haven't had big problems and kind of you know more or less made their numbers uh so uh, which is you know which is impressive for a company that hadn't really made until last year they they had a plant a small plant but it was basically kind of like a pilot plant never made a hundred thousand doses of anything in a year and now they're talking about as many as as a billion doses uh, this year. So so that's uh, quite a scale up. Bob, you've followed, obviously, I, you know, that 
little story I said at the beginning where we sat next to each other in that conference room all those months ago, and you were like, so Moderna. Um, I, in person? Uh, that was It was in the before times, wow. just, just before everything changed. Um, yep. but, but Bob, you know, I'm curious because you've written about Moderna um, week in, week out <laughs> over the past year. And then you got to do a story like this and speak to the CEO and everything else. I'm, I'm wondering, what did you learn while you were working on this story? Uh, you know, how they did this, is, you know, it's still a very small company relative to what they've done. They, like, they're up to 1,500 people now. But they, you know, they were like 800 at the start of last year. So they did all this it was a relatively small number of people, which is, you know, it's impressive. They were able to you know, to make this many doses, you know, with a few contractors and, you know, obviously some government funding. And that was significant. But, you know, it wasn't, you know, it was... It, until last year, until the pandemic came along, it was a startup company that was a well-funded startup. But you know, most of its most of its products were early trials. It wasn't planning to have anything on the market. You know, even if things went well for a few years. So this is like, you know, a rather you know impressive uh, scale up, and they certainly have big ambitions. But what I love about your reporting is you really explain the science, right? For those who are like, what is a messenger? It's still, even today, I get questions, you know, and I'm sharing articles and, and links with people. You know, what is it about the science of a messenger RNA or of messenger RNA that makes it so adaptable to create maybe so many more uses? And just got about a minute or so. Yeah, so it doesn't like solve every miracle known to medicine, but it is relatively straightforward to produce because you're not, you don't have to produce a whole new protein, which because a lot of biotech products are produced, produced inside live cells, uh, chick, you know, chicken eggs for vac- some flu vaccines, and even for, for monoclonal antibody, that's produced in like vats of live cells, and that's very complicated. And this is actually just kind of a, a, a prototype instructions and, and for the body's own cells to produce a protein. And that makes it very modular and very easily adaptable to uh, new uses. Very briefly, what derails Moderna with these ambitions? You know, uh, uh, you know, it doesn't work in other applications. You know, other co- competitors get there first, uh, or you know, they don't. You know, they don't have they don't have a, a, an intellectual property stranglehold over mm. the whole field. They can't like they can't say you know we're the only ones with mRNA. So I, th- I think that's a really interesting uh, point. You know, because a you're going to have all these other competitors, and Bob goes into how there's now like a Chinese mRNA yeah. uh, dark horse out there. But you know, it may work for. Uh, coronavirus as a vaccine, but whether or not that can translate into something that is a therapeutic that works with cancer, big, big question mark still, right? Well, and as Bob writes, he goes, you know, we rush this through, right? The FDA approval process for anything else that they do, it's going to take years. So remember that when you look at the market cap and the valuation, it'll take some time to play out. Um, Great stuff. You make us smarter. Bob Langreth, healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News, along with Jill Weber, editor at Bloomberg Business Week. I'm so glad you have those conversations with your reporters. Uh, They never stop. (laughs) That's a good thing. All right, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week, and this is Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week, Wednesday, July 14th, as we mentioned, Bastille Day. Uh, Apple shares, check it out, another record high today. There's a couple of Apple stories we want to get to. We mentioned one yesterday about Apple teaming up with Goldman for a buy now, pay later service. This is a big deal. We saw a firm trade lower on that news, uh, a Bloomberg exclusive, in fact, by our Mark Gurman and Sri Natarajan, who is also, Mark is, reporting along with Bloomberg's Debbie Wu today on how Apple is looking for an up to 20% increase in new iPhone output 
for 2021. Apple, by the way, one of my gainers today for the for the close. Yeah, $2.5 trillion market cap, getting very close to it. Mark Gurman, technology reporter for Bloomberg News, joins us on the phone from LA. Uh, Mark, let's start with uh, Apple looking to boost iPhone output by 20%. Why is Apple so confident that it can sell 20% more iPhones or needs to make 20% more iPhones to satisfy demand for this next phone? Yeah, I think there's a lot of people who despite the millions and millions of upgraders to the iPhone 12 line last year, there's still a lot of people on the iPhone 10 and earlier. And I think now this is the second version with 5G. You have stronger 5G penetration in the U.S., China, and elsewhere now. After a year of new towers being placed up, that you're going to see, you know, additional upgraders. We're also entering sort of the, you know, beginnings of the end of the pandemic. So, you know, in two months from now when these new phones will roll out, Apple likely feels that there will be, you know, additional people who are looking to buy uh, these devices. Well, it's interesting. What along their channel checks tells them this, Mark? You know, the channel checks, you know, are basically, you know, economic-based, right? They see foot traffic to Apple stores increasing. You see more Apple stores opening, right? A year ago, right, when they launched the phone, the majority of Apple stores were still closed. Now you have their entire retail footprint, plus that third-party retail footprint, reopening for the, you know, in time for this new, you know, iPhone launch, not only in the U.S., but in, in many places around the world. What do we know? What do we know about this new iPhone? This is going to be a fairly iterative update. The design is going to be the same. The notch, sort of that cutout on the top of the display, is going to be smaller, so it's going to look a little bit better. You'll have a little bit more screen real estate for all intents and purposes. Wait, wait, wait. I just bought a new phone. That's why you got to be like me, Carol, and Darn buy a phone it. every five years. I know. Oh, sorry. Yeah, Go ahead, Mark. C- Carol, what? you're well aware they come out with a new phone every year, right? Oh, I know. They come out at the same time every year. So. I want to know the Mark German thinking of, okay, this is when I do actually step up and buy the phone like how do you do it okay well i mean it's different for me right because okay, this is what i live and breathe and it's my passion <laughs> so you know i, I hate know. to tell you that i've had every iphone since the original but am i a, a consumer a normal consumer absolutely not and i recognize that what i would recommend to you know the average consumer is probably every three to four years in order okay. to keep getting those software upgrades or until the phone stops working on the other hand, there are programs now where you can get a new iPhone without paying additional money out of pocket. So if you are a tech fan, you are looking at this pretty economically, there is a way to get the phone every year without shelling out $1,000. I dropped mine and it kind of shattered the screen on a New York City street. Try to drop it in a body of water because it'll fare better. <laughs> Just put it in a bag of rice. All right. So no, they, they're waterproof now. <laughs> I know. I know. This Goldman story. Whoa, so impressive, Mark. Uh, Exclusive. Yeah. And you, a firm stock was moving down on the news. Buy now, pay later, later service. I am all in on Apple and Apple Pay now, uh, using it because of the pandemic. What could this potentially mean for Apple's business? For Apple's business, they're just going to make more uh, percentage of APR interest through the loans that Goldman is doing. You're going to see penetration and usage of Apple Pay probably likely increase. They take a low double uh, double digits uh, cents amount on every transaction. So this is just going to push people to use Apple Pay because we have to understand this is a layer on top of any Apple Pay transaction with any credit card you use. You can buy whether it's a cup of coffee, a bagel, or a purse, and you can split that over four or interest-free payments every two weeks over eight weeks, so not paying additional money. So if it's $1,000, you're paying 254 times. Plus, you're going to have easier access to loans for 
multi-thousand dollar purchases with you know lower Goldman interest rates too. Cup so, of coffee are getting kind of expensive. You might need yeah, to spread out yeah. the payments. Well, what does this say to you, Mark, about how Apple is thinking about its expansion in further into financial services? Mm-hmm. I think they're doing basically, you know, everything they can to move into fintech. Apple has a long payments fintech roadmap. Another thing they're working on uh, is for small businesses to be able to accept payments through an iPhone or an iPad. So, for example, I can have my little lemonade stand, and if someone wants to buy some of my, you know, not-so-tasty lemonade, they can tap their credit card or their phone on the back of my phone and transfer over that money. Have you heard of that before? Well, it's called Square, but now it's right. going to be built into every iPhone at some point when they roll this out. And I think it's going to be another pretty cool payment method for some people. So when this story broke yesterday, Tim and I were looking at um, market caps and we were looking at the balance sheets and the amount of cash, what, that Apple has, it's over, I think, $200 billion or something like that. I mean, they could technically go out and buy Goldman Sachs. They could buy a firm. Is that likely to be part of the strategy or they are really a build out from internally kind of company? Let's say, I don't know the market cap of a firm, but let's say... 15 billion, that's 15 it. 15 billion, okay, so you, you know, rule of thumb, maybe they would cost 30 billion, mm-hmm. right? Okay, so Apple could either pay 30 billion to buy a firm, or they could spend 3 billion to copy their product and make a better version. So <laughs> they have no reason to buy these companies. Okay. That's why they only make small acquisitions. They rather invest in building it themselves. They're not going to do buy now, pay later for a firm. They're not going to spread it out. No, they, <laughs> no but I get it. it. They, they do it internally, and they can, I know, sorry. <laughs> uh, does this get people to buy more iPhones, Mark? No, I don't think so. I would be shocked if it had any impact on iPhone hardware sales. Which, it's which, gonna... in its sense, is a difference from Apple's strategy in the past, right? And it kind of speaks to the way that Apple has shifted its strategy. Well, the strategy is keeping people from switching away from the iPhone. If you have yeah. a, bun- a bunch of monthly installments for some item you bought right through your iPhone, you can't switch to Android because you have your, your, all your payments hooked through your phone. So, you know, this is just about them turning the phone into your wallet, into your keys, into your whatever, hey, right? It's how I get on the subway every day. Getting I, into your I, home. I just there put my, my phone right there. Right. Make every, every incremental new feature makes it that much harder to get rid of your phone. Mark, you're the best. Thank you so much. Mark Gurman, he is a must-read uh, on the Bloomberg Terminal at Bloomberg.com all the time. Mark Gurman, he's technology reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone from Los Angeles. What? I just want to say this story about uh, that he wrote about the iPhones. Yeah. Um, ricocheting around the internet in the last 24 hours. Because it's... Everywhere. First, well, you know, he's always ahead of the game yeah, when it comes is. to Apple. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Well, Tim, earlier today, I caught up with the Belvedere Vodka CEO, Rodney Williams. He's also president of the company. Belvedere is part of the LVMH family of luxury brands. We did this at the Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit. And in this excerpt from our conversation, Rodney Williams talks about the changes the alcoholic beverage industry has gone through during the pandemic. Check it out. Well, you know, we are all um, well poised for return to some sense of normalcy. But uh, we're calling it a new normal uh, because so much has changed, uh, you know, during the pandemic. Um, In in our industry, there was always off and on trade. Either you consume the product in a restaurant bar or you take it home to consume it uh, uh, elsewhere. But home itself now is this whole new channel where people are entertaining at home. They're making cocktails at home because they've had all this time during the pandemic to uh, to become uh, more comfortable doing those sorts of things. So there's almost 
three channels versus two uh, in, in the industry itself. So it's interesting because, and we're going to move on in a second, but in terms of a recovery, because people were doing so much at home, I'm assuming there was a fair amount of demand, right, over this past year. So how do you determine whether or not the market environment is getting to kind of pre-pandemic levels and then maybe something a little extra because people are doing more things at homes and, and experimenting with making cocktails? It's a great question. And, you know, if, if we had a crystal ball, uh, <laughs> we'd be in great shape. But what, what we really are drawing from are lessons from uh, China and Asia, countries that have sort of uh, moved through the pandemic um, um, at an earlier pace than, than North America, Europe. And what we're certainly seeing is that um, the home consumption is continuing, but consumers have a huge, huge interest in going back to restaurants, going back to bars and nightclubs, you know, and it's uh, it's sort of validation that at the end of the day, humans are really social beings and, and, and people really did miss that connection during the pandemic. All right, so let's dig down and let's talk about sustainability because you guys have been talking about things for a while. It's really in your DNA in terms of a brand, but let's talk about the last couple of years. Last year, you launched your Made in Nature platform. This year, we have Belvedere uh, Organic Infusions that came out in the spring. You have a new biomass facility, biomass capture facility that I want to talk about. So how long has this all been in the works? Tell me how it kind of all comes together. What's the thinking and the conversations that go on at Belvedere that really guide you in a sustainable way? Yeah, sure. Um, well, you know, when we look at Made with Nature, um, it's more than just a campaign for us. It's frankly a whole platform around which we organize all of our activities, communications, innovation, and certainly sustainability and, and CSR. Um, and it, the gestalt behind it is that when Belvedere was launched, it was really about being all natural. And a lot of people miss that part of our narrative uh, that Belvedere has always been all natural, no additives, no sugar, because Poland was one of the first countries to appellate vodka the way France, Italy, U.S. appellates wine such that we can have no additives. We're non-GMO, all distilled spirits are gluten-free, um, and we're kosher certified. So we operate at these standards. And, you know, uh, prior to the pandemic, this was kind of nice to have information, except for, for maybe the younger Gen Zs who are, who are really, really into this. But mm -hmm. um, we all lived with the consequences and the forces of nature. And this has all become much more top of mind and relevant uh, for a much broader consumer base. So well, and that's what that, I'm curious. Oh, and it's the consumer, yeah. it sounds like, that's leading it, right? The consumer wants to, as you said, you know, you guys have always been natural, you know, purified water, free of additives, as you said. You talked about your Polish rye. It's been there, yeah. but you needed to communicate that to the consumer. Exactly. And we also needed to provide um, valuable proof points for what we're doing. So with organic infusions, the the vodka is organic. The uh, the 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 rye that we're using is organic. The herbs, the botanicals, everything about it is organic. Um, and we've seen we do big research in our key markets, five different countries, and three different continents. 
and pre-pandemic across the board, you had millennials and older Gen Zers saying, yes, the ingredients are important to me. Um, and now post, as we're moving out of this era, we're finding that you know some of it is because of the influences of, of kids being home from college on mm -hmm. their parents, but cross-generationally, people are much more interested in, in simple ingredient lists, things that they definitely recognize, and, um, and, and things that they understand what they are, wholesome ingredients. So that's the Belvedere Vodka CEO, Rodney Williams. Again, as I said earlier, they're a part of the LVMH family of luxury brands. You can check out more of that conversation, all the interviews from the Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit Global. You can find that at BloombergLive.com. Fascinating, Tim, and kind of prepping, prepping for that interview. They've got this new platform called Made you know, with Nature, and you go to their website. You look at these incredible films that they put out. It's all about nature and wheat fields or rye fields you know like it's just incredible i went a few years ago and it was all of a very different ad yeah it's amazing the way that the consumer messaging has shifted and if you were watching on youtube you saw that right exactly and it is and what they said is they're responding to the consumers specifically right. that consumers want to know what their products what their vodka is made of they want to know that it's much more sustainable and much more natural much more organic and that's the direction they're going in that's the direction we're going in as consumers. Totally, totally. All right, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master, Tim Stenvik, and this is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.